You can't just say, well, God foreordained it, so I'm an atomic robot. And I can just blame God for what I do because he programmed me a certain way. No, he he foreordained what will be as being certain. And the choices that you make are your own. And that makes you responsible to God. Now today we want to talk about resurrection. I know this is not Easter Sunday. But if you know anything about the way I preach, I preach on subjects any time of the year. It might be Christmas coming up, but I'm going to preach on Easter. (laughs) I'm going to preach on resurrection because this is the pivotal truth of the gospel. You say, I thought it was the cross. No, it's the resurrection. If there's no resurrection, folks, we're lost. Everybody's lost without resurrection. So let's pray and ask the Lord to teach us. Father, send your spirit upon us. Teach us of this important truth. Let us get a grasp of it. Thank you for those here. For those that couldn't be here or sick, we pray, Lord, that you will touch their ailing bodies and bring them to to good health. Um, Pray, Lord, that you will bless in a special way. Be with my brother-in-law in particular, who is having some rough heart trouble, some serious surgery pending. Pray that you'll watch over him and bring him and his family through it all. In Christ's name, amen. That's my brother-in-law, Bob, so pray for him. He's, having, he's going to have to have open-heart surgery to replace the valve. This is the second time this has had to be done in his lifetime, so would you pray for him. Okay, the joy of resurrection. I'm beginning by saying it in, uh, I don't know if it's in your, uh, we didn't have a bulletin insert, which is my fault. Resurrection is essential, get it now, it's essential to the gospel message. There is no good news in the gospel without resurrection. Say, well, I thought the cross was the good news. Well, it it is good news, but the critical point is resurrection. Look at verse 12. If it's preached, this is in 1 Corinthians 15, if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? Sometimes in the Greek language, an if statement, and that's what we got here, an if statement, indicates certainty or fact, not doubt, not conjecture. This is what we have in verse 12. If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, is not a statement of doubt. He's not saying if this was preached, but I'm not sure it was preached. That would be silly, right? When Paul certainly knows what he preached, what he taught. In in actuality, these are called third-class if clauses in Greek, and they actually affirm what is being said instead of throwing doubt on what's being said. They could therefore be rendered with the word since, S-I-N-C-E, and it would make perfect sense. So let's try it. Since it is preached 
that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? And before you get all bent out of shape on this, you know, in English we use the word if in similar constructs. I could say to you, if you're going camping with the group heading to Colorado, be sure to take along a lot of warm clothes. And if we had a sign-up sheet on the bulletin board, and I knew that you had signed up, my use of the word if would not be interpreted as doubting your intent. It would simply be a matter of information. Since you are going camping in Colorado, be sure to take along warm clothing. So we use the word if that way as well. So the question comes, how do we know when an if clause is being used to throw doubt on something if it snows heavily in Colorado over the weekend, I'm not going on the trip or if the clause is used to affirm what is a reality since it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Well, any first-year Bible student could give you the answer. Okay, first-year Bible students, here's the question. What is the most important rule of interpreting the meaning of Scripture? Context. Context. Say it again. Context. 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 I had a Greek professor that pounded that into my head and he would always say it three times context 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 okay what's the context well the verse in the larger narrative would be any verses surrounding this statement if it is preached that christ has been raised from the dead what do we find in the context well look at verse 14 if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. How so? Well, because resurrection has been what Paul had been preaching, that's why. Or verse 15, take a look at that one. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God, that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. So the context, you see, affirms that the doctrine of resurrection had been part of the gospel message that Paul and his companions had preached at Corinth. This removes all conjecture in the statement, verse 12, If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Paul had instructed the Corinthian brethren in this important doctrine. Now beyond this immediate context, which helps to clarify what Paul is saying, we may appeal to what I call the larger context of Scripture, to see if the doctrine of the resurrection was standard fare in Paul's gospel presentation during his church planning itinerary. In other words, 
is, is this the only place? 1 Corinthians 15, that Paul talked about resurrection? Or can we see where he taught elsewhere in the gospel account? Well, when we do that, there is a wealth of information. For example, in Athens, just 30 miles away from Corinth, geographically, Paul was reasoning with the Greek philosophers on Mars Hill, And we read, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. Now they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. Others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. Acts 17, verse 18, verse 32. After returning to Palestine from his missionary journey, he was arrested by the Jewish authorities and he was summoned before the Jewish council of the Sanhedrin. And we read then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others were Pharisees, he called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. And when he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits. I'm reading scripture. But the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Acts 23, verse 6 through 8. So by mentioning the resurrection, Paul stirred up a hornet's nest, didn't he? Between the two groups of theologians that were present that day in court. When Paul's trial was moved from the religious court to the Roman secular court, he was brought before the governor of Rome, Felix. And Paul said this to his accusers. They cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way. The way would be the, the gospel of Christ. Which they call, I'm reading scripture, they call a sect. Jews aren't going to accept this Christ business, you know. So, I believe everything, I'm still reading scripture, I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets, and I have... The same hope in God as these men that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Acts 24, verse 13 through 15. So you see, he doesn't hide his view of the resurrection. He just lays the cards right out on the table. His personal testimony is given in Philippians 3 and verse 10. He said, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection 
and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So what I am saying is there is an overwhelming evidence that wherever Paul went, his message of salvation included teaching on the resurrection. This being so, his statement to the Corinthian church must be an affirmation. So we can use the word since. Since it is preached, and I preached it, since it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, and you know that I've preached that in my gospel, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? Well, the only reason they could say that would be if they objected to the gospel account. But they can't say, well, you never told us that. His point is, I have told you that again and again. And I preached it wherever I go. Now, what is the importance of the resurrection? To say that there's no resurrection is tantamount to calling the apostles liars. That's first thing. Look at verse 15. We are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. You say, oh, well, now, now I get it. The only reason Paul is arguing for the resurrection is because his reputation is on the line as a person who may have misspoke for God, and he's trying to save face. Well, if that is what you think, I can say categorically, no, you don't get it. <laughs> That's not what he's saying at all. Paul could care less about what you think of him or what the Corinthian believers thought of him. He's arguing for the doctrine of resurrection because it is essential. Can I say it this way? 100% essential to your salvation and my salvation and therefore should not be taken lightly. Look at verse 13 and 14. If there's no resurrection of the dead, Here's the argument. Then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. Wow, that's a pretty sharp line to draw in the sand, isn't it? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Because he died. That's not disputed. And if Christ hasn't been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. I want you to consider these two arguments kind of separately. What if Christ has not been raised from the dead? What if that didn't happen? Look at verse 25, 26. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Verse 25. Contrary to what some in the world are saying these days about death being your friend, that, that always baffles me when I hear people talk like that. Contrary to the fact that people teach that death is a friend, especially if one is suffering from pain, I get it, 
terminal illness. They say, well, it would be a blessing if they died. God says that death is your enemy. Like all enemies, if Jesus is going to be your Savior in the full and final sense, he has to defeat that enemy. If you are honest, there are many people, maybe you too, who are afraid to die. Why are people afraid to die? Do you ever wonder? Look at verse 55 and 56. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Mm. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. That is the broken law. Fear of death has two prongs of terror. Prong number one. It may win. It may gain the victory. Verse 18. Then those who have fallen asleep are lost. There's a death behind the death. What the Bible calls the second death. Let me read it for you. Then death and hell were thrown into the lake of fire, and the lake of fire is the second death. Revelation 20, verse 14. No one wants to go there. I'd be afraid of death too if that were my destination. Those who laugh and joke about hell not only show their ignorance, but they're playing right into the devil's hands who has no intention of relinquishing his control over men. He wants the blinders to be on them. But the second death, hell and Hades, is not a laughing matter. And the first death, if it leads to the second death, you don't want to be there. That's the first prong of terror. The second prong of terror is that death has its sting. Think of a wasp, a hornet, a bumblebee, whatever. And he says the sting of death, the sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. People are deluding themselves to think that they deserve eternal life. Paul is saying that death comes your way, it comes my way because of sin. The wages of sin is death. Because you've broken God's law, because I've broken God's law. So sin has a claim on you. It has a case. And you have no defense. Those beer-drinking, fornicating, lying, cheating, obscene, and profane buddies whom people think will make their stay in hell pleasant are in the same boat together, sinking under the weight of their own sin load into the sea of fire from which there is no escape. It is not a laughing place to go. So the first argument for resurrection is that if there is no resurrection, Christ is still dead. And if he is dead, death, the last enemy, 
wins the victory. And Christ loses, and you lose, for having the audacity to believe in him. But here's the second argument. What if you have heard the gospel message preached in which resurrection is promise, but there is no resurrection after all? What then? Answer, verse 17, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. What does that mean? Verse 18. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Just another way of saying that death and hell win. So what does that make us? Verse 19. If only in this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. What? Yeah. You're a pitiful lot of idle dreamers if there's no resurrection. A doofus. A doomkoff. And isn't that what the world thinks of us? That we're crazy. Or that we're dumbbells. Or that we're idiots. Because we are saying and teaching and believing things which stretch into the impossible as far as our experiences are concerned. Question, does faith save? Does faith save? What if your faith is in the wrong thing? What if you believe a lie? Okay, then does sincerity alone for false or wrong choices? Does it atone for false or wrong choices? Say, well, after all, he was very sincere in what he believed. She was very sincere. If it is correct doctrine, won't it have substance to it? Won't it be the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help us God? There are literally millions and millions of people who have faith. There are. They have faith in themselves. They have faith in idle concepts of God. They have faith in human tradition. They have faith in human protocol. They have faith in their religion. They believe. And no one could cause them to be accused of being infidels. But the object of their faith is not the God of the Bible. Nor Jesus as the only Savior of sinners. They've chosen a different route which they believe will lead them to heaven. Some have heard the good news of the gospel that God has sent his holy, sinless, perfect son to bear the judgment of sin for all who believe. 
but they know better. They believe that the objects of their faith are as viable as Jesus. They ignore Jesus' exclusive claim. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, verse 6. Or again, when Jesus said, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture. John 10, verse 9. Unfortunately, Jesus also stated this reality. I tell you the truth. The man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in some other way, is a thief and a robber. John 10, verse 1. And what are thieves and robbers? Well, they're rebels. (laughs) They're not welcome guests, right? Why would anyone try to sneak into heaven some other way when the gate, Jesus, is there with open arms willing to receive all who believe in him? Why, 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 why would they do that? Here's why. Let me read it for you. If our gospel is veiled... It is veiled to those who are perishing, writes Paul. Why are they perishing? The God of this age, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of of God. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3 and 4. Okay, but why would Satan do such a terrible thing? Jesus will tell us. Here's what he says of Satan. He was a murderer from the beginning. Not holding to the truth. There's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar, and he's the father of lies. John 8, verse 44. And Peter wrote it this way. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. 1 Peter 5, verse 8. As our enemy, one of the things Satan does is to chain us To a fear of death. John writes, He who does what is sinful is of the devil. Because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. 1 John 3 verse 8. The writer of Hebrews writes of Jesus, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death... He might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For this reason, he had to be like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. 
Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 2, verse 14 and following. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is that there's a battle going on, folks. And it is between Satan and Jesus over the souls of men. Through our limited sight, it may look at times like evil is winning, but the die was set when Satan was expelled from heaven in his rebellion. Let me read it for you. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough. They lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore, rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and to the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. Revelation 12, verse 7 and following. The Bible says Satan's days are short. In other words, the clock is ticking. His time is expiring. The seasons for him to tempt and to deceive and blind and lead men astray are numbered. This makes him aggressive. This makes him furious. Not just a lion, but a roaring lion. Not just a hungry lion, but a lion ready to tear and devour its prey. Not just a lion content to eat lion-sought foods that the Creator apportions. No. A lion seeking souls with whom to engorge himself in a blood fest. A roaring, devouring lion. So resurrection is the final blow to the devil's schemes. The blinding he does of unbelievers is thwarted by the resurrected Christ, of whom Paul writes, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, and ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, that's in Genesis, you'll find that. He that said that, what? Made his light, Shine in our hearts 
to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God. It's not from us. It's not our light. It's God's light that he shined in us. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 and 5. What the apostle is saying is that Jesus rips the blinders off and infuses the light of truth and knowledge so that people so moved can see the very glory of Christ that Satan tries to mask and to hide. Now there has been in our day another truth, an alleged truth, that fights against resurrection, and that is the alleged truth of reincarnation. Reincarnation became popular in the Western world through the New Age movement. It has its roots in Hinduism and Buddhism. It is the teaching that all of us are on a personal, spiritual journey to perfection based on a series of evolutionary changes which occur as the result of death and then re-embodiment. And with every re-embodiment, the person gets to work on their karma, their sin, and to make atonement through good works. Because the sin is great, it'll take a number of reincarnations to reach perfection. God in this system is impersonal. He's a force. Jesus in this system is the person who shows us the way of self-purification through suffering. So they have a place for Jesus. It's wrong. It's blighted. It's a corrupt view of him. But they got him in there, and they say, see, he's our example. The way you save yourself is through personal suffering and anguish, and you atone for your sins that way. In reincarnation, there's no judge to face. There's no judgment to experience because the individual is working on righting the wrongs in his or her life on their own, through suffering and good works. This is why, here it is, this is why in Eastern countries, things like poverty, sickness, sufferings, are viewed as pathways to perfection, and so, and so... It is not our role to alleviate these things in people when we see them. Because they're just paying to eradicate the bad karma that has accumulated in their previous lives. So part of the punishment might be to be reincarnated in a lower life form like an animal or what have you. So they don't want philanthropic 
generosity, caring for, lovingly Christian viewpoints towards those that are suffering. Because you are messing with their karma. You are messing with their way of salvation. You're stepping in there and ruining everything. Let them suffer. Let them hurt. Let them starve. Let them have disease. Let them have cancer. Let them have leprosy. Let them alone. Because they're on their pathway to salvation. Can you think of anything more sinister and diabolical than that? It's creepy. All of this has the markings of Satan upon it. No personal creator to whom you are responsible. No judgment, no hell. Save yourself by being good or making your own atonement for sin. Evolve spiritually from bad person to good person through multiple reincarnations until you reach perfection. Wasn't that the great personal delusion of Satan? who boasted, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most. I can do this. I can make myself right with God. I can become my own God. Isaiah 14, verse 13 and 14. There's one verse in the Bible that lays the death blow to the whole teaching of reincarnation. Here it is. Hebrews 9, verse 27. Hebrews 9.27 Man is destined to die once. And after that, to face judgment. Die once means no multiple lives and multiple deaths, no reincarnation. And to face judgment means there is a personal God before whom all must stand and give an account. And if you're not righteous at the first appearance, there will be no second appearance or third appearance or fourth appearance or whatever. We stand with Christ or against him. Now that's reincarnation. Contrast that to resurrection. In resurrection, Jesus has done battle with your sin. He himself, reading scripture, he himself, that is without your help, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. 1 Peter 2, verse 24. This payment for sin is full, it's final. 
again, reading from the scripture. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Romans 8, verse 1 and 2. Or Colossians 2, 13. He forgave us all our sins. Is there anything ambiguous about that? He forgave us all our sins. Or again, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Romans 4, verse 25. So then, as we contemplate giving an account before God in the day of judgment, Paul writes, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, and I consider them rubbish, that I might gain Christ to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Philippians 3. Verse 8 and following. Resurrection is far superior than reincarnation. Resurrection is life in Christ who has accomplished the eradication of our sin which we could never do. Now what then are some of the joys of resurrection? Number one, resurrection signals the defeat of death through Christ. We have it in our text, verse 20. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ, that is, if you're in Christ, all will be made alive. But each in his own turn. Christ the first fruits, and then when he comes, those who belong to him. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he, God, has put everything under his feet. Again, after teaching that crops are sown in one form, a buried seed, but come alive in a different form, a stalk, a shoot, a vine, whatever, Paul applies the analogy to us, verse 42 and following. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown, put in the ground, is perishable. It's raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. Verse 43. 
And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. Wow. I I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. All that from 1 Corinthians. Philippians 3, 20 and 21. Our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly wait a Savior from there. The Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. The first joy about resurrection is that it's the defeat of death. And then secondly, resurrection signals the end of our sinful world and the beginning of the new. Look at verse 24 and following. Then the end will come. Then the end will come. When he, Jesus, hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The disciples asked Jesus one time to explain the parable of the weeds. He told, told them about this parable. And they said, well, well what, does, what, does, what does this parable mean? So he explained. The one who sowed the good seed in the field was the son of man. It's speaking of himself. The field is the world. The good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. That's you and me who believe. The weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sows them is the devil. Get the picture here. The harvest is the end of the age and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fires, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has an ear, let him hear. Matthew 13, verse 37 and following. Peter talks about this new world. He writes, as you look forward to that day of God and speed its coming, that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven And a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to that, 
Make every effort to be found spotless and blameless and at peace with him. 2 Peter 3, verse 12 through 14. That's our glorious future. It portrays a Christ who is powerful over all of the nations and works all things to bring his people into his kingdom and creates a new heaven and a new earth. Are you part of that kingdom? this morning do you know Christ as Savior have you cast all of your strength and cares and worries and efforts upon him if not you're lost you're doomed is another way of saying it may the Lord grant you faith and repentance to run to Christ see God has put his son think about this God has put his son in the premium position as the prince and savior of the kingdom. Think of a king who's going to give his kingdom over to his son. Think of a king who has all of the authority and he bequeaths the position and the authority to his son. God the Father has turned all things over to his Son. So if we believe in the Son and trust in him, there is salvation there. But if we fight the Son and resist his work of grace, then we're like the enemies of the king. I shouldn't say like. We are the enemies of the king. And we're destined for destruction. Lord, please help us. Grant us the faith and repentance we do not have to bring us into a right relationship with you. We're asking you to do that for us because in and of ourselves, we don't want that. We want the world. We love the world. We're part of it. We love our sin. There's pleasure in sin, the scripture says. Who wants to be a holy Bible-thumping, Bible-reading person. We like the fact that we can do as we want, when we want, no one to tell us, no God to obey. But not believing in God and not obeying God doesn't mean that we are getting away with it. Because God is recording it, and it says he records our deeds in a book. The book is his memory. He doesn't forget anything. And our wickedness will be punished in eternal judgment if we do not come to Christ and seek his blessing and his forgiveness. Lord, I know because we're part of this world, the tendency is to love this world and things of it more than we love God. In fact, we know more about the world than we know about God. What we do know about God is distorted. We think it's a terrible thing to be a Christian. It kills all fun and joy, and it's a miserable, rotten life. The people that talk that way are the people that are not Christians, and they don't know anything about God. So they don't know what it's like to be in a right relationship with him. 
There's one of our hymns that says there's joy, joy, joy in serving Jesus. But they don't see any joy in that. That joy comes from you. Lord, grant us that joy. Grant us that seeking after that which will bring peace to our souls and forgiveness for our sins. This we ask, not because we deserve it, but because you're a gracious and merciful God. And when you do a work in our heart, you change our lives forever. Please change our lives. We pray. Amen. Our closing hymn is from the Brown Hymnal number 224. Two, two, four in the brown.
I hope that Jesus is your hope and trust because if he's not, you're in trouble spiritually. Say, well, I'm hoping in my good works or I'm hoping in my church affiliation. I'm hoping. Well, you hope in all those things that you want, but there's only one Savior of sinners, and that's Christ. And if you hope, if your faith, you can be sincere in your faith, but if it's in the wrong object, you're in trouble. There's only one Savior. Peter said there's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Why would God save people some other way when he has sent his son into the world, his very own son, to a cross to be abused and brutalized and suffer an ignoble death so you could say, I'm going to go another way. Or another way is just as good. You're not thinking straight. There's one way. Christ has declared that. There's only one Son of God. And that's Jesus the Savior. Our Lord, we just thank you for your grace. May you be pleased to awaken faith in our hearts. Turn our eyes upon Jesus as the hymn writer says. And we'll praise you for what you do. Amen. Remember tonight, 6 o'clock, our study in Ezra.